Two weeks ago, we started in chapter 27 looking at um, Isaac blessing Jacob. So, if you recall, Esau is to go out and get special food. Uh, in the meantime, Rebekah hears this, concocts a plan. She's going to have Jacob, uh, she's going to prepare the food. She's going to have Jacob wrap around his arms uh, the goat skins going to go into Isaac, whose eyes are dim with old age, and they're going to deceive him. Jacob is going to receive the blessing. Uh, He does receive that blessing, and that's roughly where we left off. You see that blessing take place in chapter 27, verses uh, 26 through 29. Um, Wait, is that right? Yeah, that I think. Then, then his father Isaac said to him, "Is that is that Esau, or is that Jacob? No, that's Jacob." Then his father, uh, "Are you really my son Esau?" He answered, "I am." Then he said, "Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you." So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him. Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, When Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob meaning uh, deceiver, usually. But he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. 
So a rather strange blessing there, to say the least. The study note points out, just as both Cain and Ishmael were estranged from the land of their families, so also Esau would live in Edom, away from the more prosperous Israelite region. Edom and Israel would become long-standing rivals. So the breaking of his, uh, of his yoke from your neck, there's a bit of divergence there amongst the commentators as to whether that refers to the persons, uh, namely Esau and Jacob, or to their progeny, namely Edom and Israel. I suppose you could make a case either way. Let's just continue the section, then I'll have a Luther quote here on Esau's quote-unquote repentance and his uh, weeping with tears. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? All right, and then that goes on to the next uh, section. So what we see then is that uh, obviously Esau comes second and then um, does not really receive uh, the blessing he had hoped and then ends up weeping with tears. Here's what Luther has to say. This is why it is stated in the epistle of the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 17, quote, though he sought it with tears, end quote. For this is that anxious and fervent entreaty with tears with which he seeks often and anxiously, but too late and in vain. For once God has withdrawn and once the word and the grace of God have been taken away, it is not easily found again. Now, Luther uses this as a type. So he goes on, Formerly, there was a very beautiful church at Rome, and it had a larger number of confessors and martyrs than there were anywhere else in the entire world. But what horrible darkness and abominations followed when it was taken away. Now, even if they were pining away with crying and wailing, or were really dying with Esau, yet they are achieving nothing toward recovering that former light and grace of God. Before these times in the papacy, we cried out for eternal salvation, for the kingdom of God, and we afflicted our bodies violently, yes, killed them. We did not do this with the sword or with weapons. We did it with fastings and by castigating the body. 
We sought, we knocked night and day. If I myself had not been delivered by the comfort of Christ through the gospel, I would, have not lived, uh, I would not have lived two years. In this way I tortured myself and fled from the wrath of God. Nor were tears, sobs, and sighs lacking, but we accomplished nothing. Therefore it is not without a purpose that Paul is so careful to warn in 2 Corinthians 6 not to accept the grace of God in vain. Behold, he says, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Therefore, let us make use of the grace that has been offered while we may. Let us open our mouths and hearts and permit the blessing be poured into us. For when it has been taken away, we are done for. The Germans use a proverbial imprecation, uh, imprecation that is not evil. May God afflict lazy hands with boils. That is, may evil betide remiss and lazy hands. They urge us to avail ourselves of the opportunity at hand without delay. Thus, when the gospel is taught, let us hear and learn it with grateful hearts, as Christ says. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The light is with you for a little longer. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now, one more type here. Uh, he's used as a type for Esau's false repentance, the repentance of Rome, so to speak, and the false repentance that he experienced as a monk. Okay? And how different that is from the true repentance that comes by virtue of law and gospel and by virtue of being made whole uh, in the gospel. So now he's going to use that same typology of the false repentant, uh, repentance uh, with the Jews, and he's going to make comment there. By way of uh, preceding this event with Esau and Esau's false repentance, we saw Cain's false repentance. If you recall all those weeks ago, way back in the early chapters of Genesis, um, he repents, not so much that he murdered his brother, but that he got caught and now there was going to be a temporal punishment. He was going to be cut off from the land and from his people. Do you recall that? Yeah. So he has a weeping with tears too, but it's not a penitent weeping with tears. And that's what we're seeing here with Esau. That's what Luther points out to Rome and now in this next section to the Jews that rejected the Christ, uh, looking back at that first century in particular. So, Luther's last point here for us. And surely the example of the Jews proves adequately what horrible darkness laid hold of them when they no longer believed in him who did such signs before their eyes. For they fulfill this figure of Esau uncommonly well. They cry out day and night. They have been castigating the body with fasts and prayers for 1,500 years. They pray most fervently, Lord God, send the Messiah for thy name's sake, for thy word's sake, and for thy kingdom's sake. Even stones and rocks could be moved by these prayers and lamentations. But they find no place for repentance. Not that there is no place for repentance, but they are going to heaven by a wrong road and want to acquire the blessing by their own merits, which is impossible. They do not acknowledge their sin, but they justify themselves just as Esau does. They say, we are Israel. Thus Esau said, I am your firstborn son. O God, they say, the heathen have taken away the birthright and the blessing. Although they feel God's wrath, they do not want to acknowledge their sin, 
But to feel sin and the wrath of God because of sin is very great grace. And salvation is close to such sinners. So here Luther really comes into his own and gets to the point. To feel sin and the wrath of God because of sin is very great grace. And salvation is close to such sinners. As a result, they are easily brought to repentance. But to defend and excuse sin is to pass judgment on God. That is, to condemn in his words, as Psalm 51.4 says. Therefore, Esau is an example of all the Jews. All right, so what Luther finds here is a type of false repentance. It works individually, it works corporately, um, but it's someone who really cares nothing for their birthright, in fact, exchanges it for a bowl of porridge, uh, wants, the, uh, wants the blessing simply for the power that it gives him and the prestige that it gives him, and when it's taken away from him, then repents with false tears. And as Luther will go on to say, uh, here's evidence of his great repentance, and here's about how sorry you should feel for Esau. Uh, before the tears have even dried off of his cheeks, he's already plotting what? The, yeah, the murder of his brother. So uh, don't, don't be misled here by the, by the crocodile tears. I think that's what we'd call them, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's, uh, that's Luther's take and this part of the text. Now, um, before we move on to the transition, which I already read the first part of, that's verse 46 and following. Before we move on to the transition, any thoughts or comments you have? You know, I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, there's a lot written about these two. Uh, I, I mean, it goes back into the womb even. They were fighting in the womb. Uh, Jacob came out second. He was the heel catcher, so he's continuing his fighting. Right. He's grabbing a hold of Esau. And we see the uh, uh, selling the birthright. And then we see the blessing, which we're covering now. But then over in Romans, there's some reference to uh, it saying that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Uh, it, it could. Can we? Can you comment on that whole? Uh, is false repentance uh, and um, Esau feeling feeling he's the legitimate one, but he wasn't called by God. He wasn't regenerated. Uh, yet Jacob, even though he was a deceiver, he he was the one who God's blessing was upon. But uh, I mean. I go back to the uh, the selling of the birthright, and I don't know how the birthright is connected to the blessing. Maybe they're two separate and distinct uh, actions. But he he consciously gave up his right, and you know. And I see in the world people are willing to sell uh, eternity and salvation. You know, they want to reject God's offer of salvation for a near term. Uh, Call it an idol, a satisfaction, mm -hmm. and uh, so I see that as a similarity going on in the world now. But I guess if you could just comment on the whole context of uh, God uh, in Romans nine thirteen, where it says God uh, loved Jacob and hated Esau. Yeah, that must sure. be salvation. Sure, um, I can. That's a. It's a rather large topic. 
but I can, I can maybe simplify in this respect. Esau himself, as a, as a historical person, as we're going to see in the next pages, is a complex character. Uh, arguably, even in the very next chapter, there's a sign of, rep- of true and genuine repentance on Esau's part. And later on, of course, he doesn't murder uh, his brother, though he seems to have the chance to, but forgives him and is reconciled with him. So I think if you were to just take, for example, the question of the historical person of Esau, do I look okay? Yeah, okay. Any flowery borders, nothing like that? You want to add one, Liz? (laughs) She's like, let's see what my options are here. Everything's okay? I think so. All right, very good. Well, you never know if there's technical difficulties. If I'm having a wardrobe malfunction or something, I, you never know. <laughs> so just want to make sure of these things. At any rate, uh, Esau, um, complex character. And probably, you know, I, I think a good argument could be made by the, by the end. We'll, we'll just see. I mean, let's let it take its course. But a good argument probably could be made that Esau... Uh, he might well die a Christian, right? Yeah, he might well. So, and and that view that view holds some water because certain church fathers even end up seeing in in uh, Esau a type of Christ, the older brother whom we clothe ourselves in so that the Father blesses us. So that's one layer of this onion, so to speak, Barry. Um, another layer of this onion is uh, it's a rather fun thing that Luther brings out. Um, and it takes us back to look with me back in chapter 25 and see, maybe, maybe for the sake of completeness, we ought to just look at 19 again. So 25, chapter 25, 19 in Genesis. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. So now here's Luther's take on this. Here you have the word of the Lord, that says the older shall serve the younger. Luther's take is that uh, that the way that they're born, um, Isaac says, uh, okay, well, that prophecy actually means um, that, that Isaac, or excuse me, Isaac believes that the prophecy is that Esau is the one, and Rebekah believes the prophecy says that Esau is the one. Thus, as soon as they come out, you see a favoritism. 
you see that Isaac loves Esau and Rebekah loves uh, Jacob. And Luther says that, there was a, that they disagreed over the interpretation of what that meant. Who was older, who is younger, um, is contentious. Not, not in fact by who's born, but that there was a wrestling match on the inside, and man, maybe it got mixed, mixed up. Right? So maybe the firstborn really did come out, you know, and really is the firstborn, and, uh, or, or, and, and that would be Rebecca's argument. Or maybe they got turned around, and uh, depending on how you think about the, the language there, um, the one shall be stronger than the other. Maybe that, maybe that says that, uh, hey, Esau came out. He came out first. The other one was grabbing a hold of him. He's stronger. He sure is stronger as he grows up. And now, he's, look, he's hairy, and he's hunting, and he's the man's man. Uh, so Isaac says he's the guy. That's Luther's take on this. So be that as it may, but there are those complexities involved too. And then you can kind of see that in the blessing, the way the two parents behave, that sort of thing. All right. So there would be another layer to the onion, right? Now, I think, I think another more simple... Uh, layer to the onion. What we've been looking at is back in Hebrews. So if we go to Hebrews chapter 12, let's, let's look at this uh, closely. All right. Luther has a reference at... Twelve seventeen. So, um, maybe we had better start at uh, verse seven. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So look in context how Esau is functioning as a type. Those who sold the birthright, that is this whole thing, for something of no value or just passing value, right? So rhetorically, that's functioning in this epistle in the same way. 
we, we believe that the author of Hebrews is writing to Jews who had converted to Christianity and under persecution are wanting to go back. He's saying, in effect, don't sell your birthright just because you're suffering. Rather, understand that suffering as discipline from the Lord and don't be like Esau. And now you see where, where Luther then takes the point to, to make Esau a type of the Jews. He says, well, unfortunately, all too many Jews were like Esau. Right? So it's not an anti-Semitism on Luther's part. It's a careful study of uh, not only the Gospels, but then here, uh, the rhetoric in Hebrews 12. So um, that, see to it that no one is, verse 16, sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Um, I think unholiness is probably in view there. Sexual immorality only by extension in the, in the sense that uh, maybe in a twofold sense that idolatry is adultery. And then you could make the argument that Esau with his Hittite wives, that might be an example of the sexual immorality that uh, takes him outside of the, 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 the fellowship of believers. But at any rate, look at 17. It continues discussing Esau. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he, saw it with, though he sought it with tears. Now again, look first and foremost at rhetorically what the author of Hebrews is doing. Don't abandon the faith, right? Don't sell your birthright for a single meal. Afterward, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Right? Um, so don't, like, that's the warning is that if you sell your Christian faith for this momentary, for this little pot of porridge, so to speak, for this mo momentary reprieve or earthly delight, then um, when you go back, it won't be there. Okay. And that would be a phony kind of repentance anyway. It would be like the same thing we say to our little kids. You're not sad over what you did. You're sad that you got caught, right? Or you're, you're sad over the consequence, not over the act. It, it isn't this look like the history of the first Adam and the second Adam? Yes. I think that's very astute. Mm -hmm. right, because he's lost his birthright with the fruit of the tree. Yes. And then the second Adam. Very, very good. Yeah, exactly right. And I think I think we I maybe only touched on that very briefly one week. That wherever you have these uh, these firstborn, secondborn kinds of relationships, you have a type of that first Adam, second Adam. Uh, yeah, very good. Thank you for that. I have more or less a question because Hebrew seems to focus on the fact that um, Esau was the was the wrong one and I don't disagree with that because he sells his birthright. Yep. He minimizes what he has and, yep. and gives it away. Um, but Jacob was pretty duplicitous oh, when yeah. he went in and got the blessing because as I understand it the blessing meant a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And um, why is it that Jacob do you think I mean I can't read their minds but why is it that the focus would be on Esau, who, in my thought, I'm thinking, 
because he started the whole thing rolling. He, he gives away his birthright and the ramifications keep going. Right. I, th I think that's probably the key, P certainly probably the focus of, uh, of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, that, that the, fault, the fault in not receiving the inheritance lies with Esau himself, rejecting his birthright. And, a, and that, that is probably one of these iconic moments that is to say, it bespeaks what went before and what went after in his relationship to his family. So it's, it was one of those moments that summed up, if you will, Esau's life and relationship to God, to his family. And his family at that time is the church, right, to the whole thing. He was in it for him. And when it came down to it, he actually didn't care about it in the least and threw it away for a... And maybe Rebecca played on that and said, this means nothing to you, but it would mean everything to Jacob. I don't, I don't yeah. know, but it's always... Well, one of, yeah, one of the things that makes it particularly difficult is you have the... I mean, this whole narrative. It makes it difficult and fun at the same time. You have the promise of God before they're even born that this is what's going to happen. So what makes that fun and a great thought experiment, as so much of the Old Testament invites us to, is what if Rebekah had done nothing? What if Jacob had done nothing? If they had just sat back faithfully and waited, somehow, one way or another, God's word and promise would have been true. But here, once again, you might say, here are sinners forcing God's hand, as it were, and it causes great problems for their family. So that would be, that would be similar to example for the, the promise that God gives to Abraham and Sarah. And they believe that promise, but then doubts come along and they go to force God's hand, so to speak, with Hagar, and it causes untold problems. So viewed from that angle, one of the morals of the story might be, wait on the Lord. Don't take matters into your own hands. Wait on the Lord. Uh, that would at least be the way. Because then, if you think about it, Jacob would have had the inheritance and, and the blessing, and maybe his brother wouldn't have wanted to murder him. Maybe he wouldn't have had to flee for his life, etc., etc. So that's all speculating along that side of the coin. Um, the, uh, I, think, I think the way on the Esau side of the coin the way that Hebrews and Luther would have us, and here we are on about the third layer of your question, Barry, getting to the fourth and final one, which is the most difficult, is uh, looking at Esau and saying, uh, he is not without fault. He's not without fault. I mean, he rejects his birthright. And in that moment, that really bespeaks, again, his whole life in rejecting his family and rejecting the church, as it were, and rejecting the promise of God. That's his, uh, up and through this part of the narrative, that's what it is. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us it is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So then um, Esau becomes a type of those who have every blessing and reject it. And then once, once they feel the consequence of that rejection, then immediately come the crocodile tears. Right? Not tears over uh, what they've done, which would be true repentance, and that's Luther's point, but um, only tears over what the consequences are. That, by the way, uh, that, 
that is also like the the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth that Jesus describes in hell. It's is is sometimes speculated to be in the same way, not a true or genuine repentance or conversion of the heart, but simply that the consequence has befallen. Right. So it's just, which really is just an explanation or an expansion, I should say, of the of the sinful nature. Now the sinful nature has gotten the punishment that it you know, has long deserved and never believed was coming, and now it's upon it, and now it's weeping and wailing. I mean, you can't, you can't actually feel very sorry for that. You, know, you can kind of pity it, but you can't really sympathize with it. All right. So now we move over to the last layer, Barry, and we can go over to uh, Romans 9 and take a look at that if you like. And you'll have to forgive me if uh, you know I'm not up to speed on the on the finer points here. I wasn't quite prepared to go on a field trip, but we'll do the best we can. And I think Luther might be helpful here too. Let me just see where he's taken this. Ah, yes. Luther has uh, much to say about maybe that's a good place to pick up. I've got a lot of Luther to read on this point if we want him. At any rate, Romans uh, 9. Yeah, I think we should. I'm only looking to see... uh, if we need to go any any further back than that, let's uh, let's if we need to, we will. But let's pick up at chapter nine, verse one, and just get the full context. He has just said, of course, at the end of eight, neither uh, nothing, not height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's Paul speaking as a Hebrew about the Hebrews. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So, in other words, the Jews are, you know, among human races to be honored the highest above all, on account of the gifts and blessings that God has given them by pure grace and by their election, so to speak, in this regard, not in a salvific regard at this point, but this election to receive the blessings uh, over and against all the, all the other uh, Gentiles. 
Verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So what's being said there? Being a, being a Jew by birth or a Hebrew by birth does not actually make you part of Israel proper. What does? Faith. Yeah, faith. Now Paul makes this argument, of course, in Romans, but also in Galatians, that those who have faith are truly sons and daughters of Abraham. So that's what he means, um, not all Israel is Israel. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Here quoting. Okay. Isaac, remember, is the son of promise and the son of the free woman. And Paul does that theology in Galatians. If you remember that um, field trip we took over to Galatians that one week. So, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. It means it's not enough to simply be born a Jew. That's not what makes you a child of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That's the gospel promise and those who believe in it. So, how are you children of Abraham, how are you members of true Israel? Not by biological descent, but by faith. That's Paul's point heretofore. Are we good with that? Makes sense? I mean, I think it's clear as day. Um, hopefully you see it too. Verse 9, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Again, we're talking about Isaac, who is a type of Christ, of course. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay? So, take a look at uh, verse 10 in the study notes. And we'll pick up with Isaac. Someone in Paul's audience might argue that God chose Isaac to be the son of promise because he was born of Sarah, Abraham's wife, and not of Hagar, a slave woman. Okay. And then, by one man, that quote, God's elective choice is especially clear in the case of Jacob and Esau, for both were born of the same father and mother. So that's why he introduces Jacob and Esau being born of the same father and mother, so that it is truly by election, by God's choice or decision, um, not by merit. Okay. Um, now, where did we leave off? Verse 11 in the study notes. God's elective purpose has not fallen by the wayside, but remains at work in history. Okay, Look up at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So, in other words, does God select Jacob over Esau because of merit? No. 
No. Now, the immediate problem to our minds is, well, that's not just. But cannot God bless whom he wants to bless? Be gracious to whom he wants to be gracious? Okay. And the answer there is yes. Okay. So let's just leave that be for right now. Um, God chooses to bless uh, Jacob for no reason other than his own choice. There's no merit or worthiness in them. In fact, as the story goes along, you see there's demerit and unworthiness on the part of, uh, of Jacob. Okay. Um, then just dropping down, still in the study note in verse 11, uh, not because of works, dot, 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 calls, the comment after that, part of verse 12 in most English versions um, it is, and here is a quote then, it looks like from the formula of Concord. It is false and wrong when it is taught that not only God's mercy and Christ's most holy merit, but also something in us is a cause of God's election, on account of which God has chosen us to eternal life. Before we were born, yes, even before the foundations of the world were laid, he elected us in Christ. Okay? So that's the point if you apply Paul's rhetoric here uh, to salvation, is that salvation by election, that's done without any work or merit in us. Make sense? Okay. Now, this uh, verse 13, Jacob, have I loved... But Esau I hated, actually, as you'll note, comes from Malachi. So that's cited in Malachi. Now, the love-hate, uh, I'll just simply put this here as an aside. It doesn't, really, it doesn't really do us any good in terms of the material theological question here. But it's worth pointing out, um, hated is not, uh, strictly speaking, hated linguistically. It's really preferred. We're going to see that coming up, in fact, I think in the Genesis text with Leah and Rachel. Um, he, he says he loves Rachel but hates Leah. He doesn't hate her. He has lots of children with her. He keeps her in the household. It's clear that he prefers, uh, you know, and the same thing, too, is when Jesus teaches us to hate our families, uh, to hate mother and father and brother and sister and that kind of thing. It's not that that's some sort of a virtue. We're supposed to love them. How, in what way are we supposed to hate them? Only insofar as we would compare and contrast them over against Christ, right? Then he we must love and the rest we must hate. But again, it's really, in English, that whole concept, even though it's so starkly stated, would really be prefer or put in the first place. Does that make sense? So that the spiritual family in Christ would be the first place. Everything else would be second. Christ would be loved. Everything else would be hated in that respect. Right? But nowhere does God command us to hate family. You know, in fact, the commandments are the opposite. Honor your father and mother. And the whole summary of the second table, love, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So, okay. so now we're getting through the, the language of that. Um, we have to continue on. Look at, look at what's presupposed. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Sure seems to us that there would be. Sure seems to reason that there would be. Even if we're just talking about temporal blessings at this point in time, right? 
I mean, why would God just willy-nilly select the secondborn and bless him with all sorts of temporal blessings? So let's just take it at the temporal level. Even then, it strikes us as unjust. So Paul rightly presupposes our feelings and our question toward this teaching. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So at this point, uh, Paul's answer to that is, strict. it's not a matter of strict justice, it's a matter of God's grace. God might, we, we might even expect Paul to say, um, why does God have to be gracious to all? Or why is God, does God have to be equally gracious to all? Is that too a matter of justice? Not strictly speaking, it's a matter of grace. If it were a matter, of, see, if it were if it were a matter of justice, then now you're talking about merits. Well, they have no merits. Well, then it, we're talking about grace. We're talking about God adding something or giving something. It goes it goes like this way of thinking goes back to that um, parable that Jesus tells about those who um, he hires to work in the field for a denarius, right? So they work a whole day for a denarius, and all throughout the day, the Lord calls others to work, or the master calls others to work, and they all work, and at the end, there's a discrepancy, because those who worked, they all receive a denarius at the end, and those who worked in the full brunt and heat of the day, they say, wait a minute, that's unjust, I mean, in the same way we might say, wait a minute, that's unjust. Uh, Jacob got a better gig than Esau. Both Jesus there and God here through St. Paul says, wait a minute, you're confusing categories. Can I not be gracious to whoever I want to be gracious? Did you not agree to work with me for me for a denarius? He did. Um, so our reckoning of what's just doesn't account for God's beneficence and graciousness. So heretofore, we have that argument being made by Paul. Look at 16. Look where he's going with this. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Specifically speaking there, he has mercy on Israel, right? And leads them out from under Pharaoh's bondage and knows Verse 19, we have essentially a repeat of that question, is there justice on God, is there injustice on God's part? Don't we? It's very similar, question 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Hey, that's the that's the justice injustice. For who can resist his will? And that nuances it a little bit shifts the shading of it a little bit. That is to say, if God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills, then how can he find fault? Because who can resist his will? It's a 
perfectly rational, reasonable question, isn't it? And it's Paul who introduces it. Verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now again, instead of answering it within the framework of God's justice, whereas previously he's expanded it out to say, look, you're not accounting for grace and you're not thinking about grace the way God thinks about grace. Now also here, his answer isn't, oh, I've got a nice, tight, rational solution that's going to work for you. It's, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Okay, What is Paul doing heretofore? We might simply say, asserting the sovereignty of God. That when God elects, no one can change that election. Does that make God unjust? No. Uh, Does that make um, us uh, faultless? No. And Paul's answer is no more satisfying to us than, guess what? God doesn't sit under the human judgment seat and under the tribunal of our reason and our sense of what's right and wrong. In other words, I mean... It's a, it's a strict and stern preaching of the law that we don't find this right. That doesn't have to do with our objectivity. That has to do rather precisely with our idolatry. And that's Paul's point. It is a stunning point to make. Okay. Now, it goes on beyond that, but let's let Paul make the point he wants to make. Right? When you say it has to do with our idolatry, the idolatry of ourselves or our identity. What? Yeah, yeah. It's so it, it works like this. Um, like if you go back, if you go back to to this question, if you go back to the question in fourteen, is there injustice on the part of God? What's what is what is the assumption there? That God is subject to us answerable to us, and answerable to our definition of justice. Yeah. Likewise, look, and maybe it's even more clear with this. Um, Verse 19, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Again, here now we don't have, we actually have an accusation. An accusation couched in the form of a question. 
Not only is God unjust in a general sense, he's unjust in a specific sense because he finds fault with some and not others. He makes some to be converted and he makes some to be hardened and then he still holds them culpable. Right? You could almost apply, you could almost apply this to everything. Yeah. Like, um, for instance, some saying, I don't understand the incarnate God, or I don't understand the crucifixion, or how could that have been, and what about the Lord's body and blood? It can't be, you know. We all put, many of us put God to our own um, rationale. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've heard Jewish people say before, but we are the, we are the chosen people. And um, according to verse 27, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I, would, I, would, say, I would say in the first place, um, let Paul's point that he's making here stand, even if it's offensive. Yeah. That's what I would say. Okay. Now, and let's go a little further, and then we'll come back and take a look at a section out of this again. Are we out of time? Oh, my gosh. Well, we spent all our time on this, and we're not even through it. Look at, uh, look very quickly with me. At, so let's get a resolution. Because heretofore, we're actually, I've actually, and I, we're, we've actually only done one side of the coin, which is God's, the sovereignty and God's election, and the fact that God's election cannot be undone. Okay? But we haven't looked at the other side, which is ultimately human culpability. We're not examining that side and that way of thinking yet. All right. So if it's sitting like, well, this doesn't sound right, or this isn't uh, yet the full picture, well, you're exactly right. It's not. Let's go just a tiny bit further and look at um, 27 and what follows. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, that is those according to the faith, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Here's the key. But as if it were based on works, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him would not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What's Paul's point here on the other side of the coin? That damnation is not because God damns. Damnation is because people reject God. 
And in rejecting him, like Pharaoh did, God might harden. Or like unbelievers, God might harden, no doubt. Um, but that culpability is on the part of those who reject Christ in unbelief. Okay, now two things we can go back and do, and, are, and are, we really ought to very quickly, so I don't get in trouble with those people listening online. One fine point in reading this and in reading the next chapter um, is made by our book of Concord, and that's on verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Notice, it does not say God prepares them for destruction. Look at the grammar. Notice, it does not say God prepares them for destruction. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So who prepares vessels of wrath? The devil. Yep. The devil, the world, and our own sinful natures. That's who prepares vessels for wrath. Who are those which he has prepared, according to this? The only whom he has prepared are those who are going to receive his mercy, that is, vessels of his mercy. So then here you have it now suddenly being perfectly in accord with the Book of Concord, perfectly in accord with our Lutheran understanding that very simply, if you're in heaven, that's because God put you there. If you're in hell, it's because you put yourself there, right? Okay, final wrinkle, one line. Verse 12, look at the study note. This is good. It's worth considering. Esau's descendants, the Edomites, would serve Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. The topic here is God's work in history, not spiritual election or predestination, as in chapter 8. Ah, the Lord be with you.